You're listening to the third episode of Facing It, a podcast about climate grief, eco-anxiety, and what it means to be human in the age of climate crisis. Dr. Jennifer Atkinson will guide you on a journey through the emotional toll of ecological loss and mass extinction, and offer strategies for moving from despair to action in our fight for a livable future. This series is produced by Intrasonics UK with the music and sound recordings of Cryon. The Persian poet Rumi once said, the wound is the place where the light enters you. It's one of those sayings I typically dismiss as just another quote that gets printed on sympathy cards. But after 10 years of working on climate issues, those words have returned many times to make me rethink how we respond to this crisis. Every week when I walk into the classes I teach at the University of Washington, there's some new report to break your heart. Fires raging across Australia and the Amazon rainforest. Reports that bird populations have crashed by a third in North America since the 1970s and warnings that half of all wildlife could vanish in coming years. New studies show that sea level rise will flood coastal areas more quickly and dramatically than previously predicted, and that drought, food shortages, armed conflict, and more severe climate disasters could be the norm by mid-century. Yet in the midst of all this tragedy, global carbon pollution keeps rising. If we're to have any chance of meeting the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement, emissions should be dropping sharply. But last year, they hit an all-time high, smashing the previous record set just the year before. So it's not surprising that I see so much despair among today's college students. They tell me they don't want to have kids because they could grow up in an apocalyptic future. Some have trouble sleeping at night, or they feel betrayed by the previous generation that handed them this mess and guilty for all the ways they've contributed themselves. And it's not just students suffering from climate grief. Scientists talk about falling into depression from researching dying coral reefs and disappearing wildlife. Unsuspecting tourists have found themselves fleeing megafires or watching Arctic landscapes melt away before their eyes. I know restaurant workers and video game developers who suffered chronic anxiety after the U.S. pulled out of the climate agreement in Paris. And then there are all the communities on the front lines of this crisis who aren't just watching the world unravel from a distance. They're living it every day. But to make things harder, our culture doesn't acknowledge the pain of losing wild creatures or part of our natural world the way we do in acknowledging human loss. So those witnessing this destruction are often left to mourn in the shadows. This is what's known as disenfranchised grief, a sense of loss someone feels, but that society doesn't acknowledge. 
That lack of legitimacy only intensifies the pain and isolation. In response, support groups like the Good Grief Network have chapters springing up across the U.S. to help people cope. And climate psychology has become a new field as therapists see more patients with eco-anxiety. As a climate educator, I wanted to do my part as well, so I created a seminar that helps people navigate the emotional toll of environmental loss. Like anyone experiencing physical or emotional pain, students wanted relief from their distress. I wanted that too. But something unexpected happened along the way. I had always thought of grief as a bad thing, a dark state to avoid or overcome as quickly as possible. I thought that feeling grief was like giving in to a preventable illness, or that once it took hold, I might fall into a bottomless hole of despair. Like the students who signed up for my class, I was hoping to extinguish my grief for all this suffering. Then it dawned on me that maybe we were seeking solutions to the wrong problem. We all wanted to fix the way we felt so we could go back to feeling happy. But grief isn't something to be fixed because it's not dysfunctional. It's a healthy and necessary process we have to undergo in order to heal. In fact, grief can be a valuable source of wisdom as we move into an uncertain climate future. I know this sounds controversial in a moment when environmentalists are urging us to focus on hope, but the two aren't mutually exclusive. And for many people, grief may be an even more powerful force for transformation. That's why Rumi's insight about light entering us through our wounds isn't just clever wordplay. Grief is one of the great unacknowledged paths to hope and compassion. Some argue that it may be our best ally in the age of climate crisis. This episode looks at three reasons I think they're right. First, grief isn't just one of many options for accepting loss. Grief is the process of accepting loss. I get why many people working towards sustainability want to sidestep emotional issues and push the public straight into action. The situation is urgent, and dwelling on our feelings can seem like an extravagance as the fires close in. But the problem is, when we try to jump straight to the final step without first processing the emotional toll of all this lost beauty in life, we're bypassing the very insights that motivate us to save what we love. Ignoring ecological grief is like trying to rush through any great loss, a job, a home, someone you love, without pausing to acknowledge what you're leaving behind. In all those cases, we're not just losing something we once had, we're losing the future that many of us had counted on. We can't act creatively and honestly in this new reality if we still believe we're living in the old one. Most of us are stuck in a pre-climate change fantasy realm, clinging to delusions that our world in coming years will still be the world we imagined growing up. Denial isn't just a description for people who reject the science. It describes university professors like me and scientists who devote their lives to studying climate change and activists fighting to keep things from getting worse. We understand the problem intellectually, but don't live our lives as though we do. 
We accept the facts, but we haven't felt our way through what those facts mean, how our lives, how all lives will be undone in some way. We're like the person who knows a loved one is dead, but hasn't let that reality penetrate to their core, where it will reorganize all the ways they relate to the past and future and determine all they'll have to let go of. In short, giving yourself over to grief is the difference between reciting a fact and knowing a truth. But even though all personal losses share this difficulty, not all grief is identical. Climate grief may be more complicated than other losses. For one, we can't find comfort in telling ourselves that what's happening is a necessary or inevitable part of the natural cycle. Unlike the death of individuals, ecological assault is preventable. Another difference is that our climate suffering doesn't happen a single time to a single person. It's an intergenerational legacy that will leave behind a diminished world to everyone not yet born. And third, while our loved ones may die of an illness we played no part in creating, with environmental loss we feel complicit, which adds more layers of guilt and denial. In the face of so much emotional complexity, even people who can openly grieve in other situations feel numb in response to climate disruption. Or they learn that staying detached feels safer. Climate activists have told me that's how they protect themselves and keep moving forward in the face of setbacks. I've gone through those phases too. But if we numb our sadness and pain, how can we still feel love and compassion as intensely as before? Our emotional lives can't be compartmentalized like that. When we deaden one sense, we diminish all the others as well. And the result is an impoverished experience of the world we want to save. The second way grief acts as our ally is by breaking down boundaries we've created between ourselves and other species, as well as other humans. We usually think of mourning as a private experience, but it can also be a radical political act. In our culture, there's a hierarchy of lives that matter and lives that don't. Some deaths receive elaborate mourning rituals and public tributes, while others are trivialized or ignored. Marginalized groups know how this absence of public grief dehumanizes them, which is why LGBTQ activists, people seeking justice for murdered indigenous women, and Black Lives Matter all use public protests and vigils to demand that those deaths aren't made invisible. In the same way, when we openly grieve for the loss of other species, or forests, or rivers, we're asserting that non-human lives are also worthy of mourning, and refusing to accept their exclusion from human circles of compassion. In addition, the act of challenging boundaries between species transforms our personal perceptions. Keeping nature and humanity in separate categories prevents us from seeing our living planet as a network of kinship to which we belong. Grief calls us back to an awareness of those bonds. This makes it a restorative spiritual practice in its own right, as Douglas Burton Christie has argued. He wrote that, the ability to mourn for the loss of other species is an expression of our sense of participation in 
and responsibility for the whole fabric of life. That's why we can't leave climate solutions to science and technology or policymakers alone. There's no technology we could invent that would fix our deeply ingrained habit of seeing the natural world as an object, as something detached from human lives. This brings us to the third and most powerful way that grief can act as an agent of transformation in the era of climate chaos. Beneath everything, grief is a sign of deep attachment and connection. You will not grieve for something you don't love. That's what grief is. It's the pain felt in losing something dear to you. Martine Prechtel once wrote that grief is praise because it is the natural way that love honors what it misses. So we shouldn't think of grief and love as opposites, but actually as two sides of the same coin. The artist Chris Jordan echoes that insight in claiming that when we try to be cheerful and suppress our grief for the world, we're also suppressing our love for it. Grief and love can be seen as inseparable twins, he wrote. When we hold grief at a distance, our love becomes inaccessible. And when we embrace grief, we reconnect with the essential aspect of our being that has gone missing. I want to close with a confession. The first few years I was teaching my seminar on climate grief, I didn't really know what I was doing. But in an emergency, our responsibility is to jump in and do our best rather than standing on the sidelines because we're insecure about our lack of expertise. So despite feeling unqualified, I dove in. Then my dad died, and it pulled the rug out from underneath me. I'd never known grief like that before, and was struggling just to drag myself back into the classroom after his loss. But his death brought clarity to my work around climate change. For the first time... I really understood the purpose of what I'd been doing all along. It made me confront a question that countless others have faced in the wake of a painful loss. Would you choose, if you could, to extinguish the pain entirely? Would you abandon it like a bad habit or a bag of rotting fruit? Or would you hold it close to stay connected to the thing you loved? and to keep you mindful of the relations that give your life meaning. I choose to keep the pain for my father. Even though it hurts like hell, snuffing it out would dishonor my love for him. Nor could I do so even if I wanted. Our love isn't some flimsy birthday candle put out by a draft from the window. I don't want it to rage out of control and consume me, but still... I need to feel the low, steady smoldering of sadness holding its place, drawing me back after a spell of forgetfulness to the memory of his scarred hands and gentle voice. As time marches on, the ache I carry reminds me to speak of my father to others, to honor what he taught me, to treasure the small items I took from his room the morning he died, a book, a pin, a poem transcribed by hand. That's what I came to understand about environmental loss as well. The persistent grief we feel for our world reminds us to honor the sanctity of life wherever we find it. <laughs>
to hold even tighter to our values, and to resist with all we have any act that threatens to extinguish the life that remains. <laughs> 